Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. And Gateway also serves lunch and dinner seven days a week through their takeout program. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. That's Des Moines' premier location for jazz. Uh, live concerts and also doing concerts remotely uh, through live stream. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. Right, so later in the program, uh, we're going to be talking about... Uh, Oh, well, we'll be talking about bee stings in the final segment of the program. Um, and we were preparing to talk about that before I became um, more intimately connected with the, um, with the problem. But um, we'll also be welcoming Charles Goldman to the program. We'll be talking about the 100th anniversary of um, women, some women, most women, receiving the right to vote. Uh, that's, there, there's a way to phrase that that um, is intentional. There's, uh, there's plenty of progress that still needs to be made. And we'll also be talking about the U.S. Senate reports on Russia, which um, most people miss because the news media really didn't pick it up that much. Speaking of what the news media hadn't picked up that much, um, I want to talk about the Iowa derecho. But first, let's look at the stuff that is getting news attention in the category of climate chaos. So we've got this um, very unusual situation in the Gulf of Mexico where two named storms uh, formerly Hurricane Marco, now Tropical Storm Marco, and current Tropical Storm Laura, probably going to become Hurricane Laura, they're in the Gulf at the same time. And uh, the earlier predictions showed that they would, they would both hit Louisiana as hurricanes, uh, just, you know, just a few miles apart. A few miles is, you know, in, in... I mean, you never quite know where a hurricane is going to land, but the the cones of projection were just right there in the same area, both in Louisiana. And that, would, that was supposed to occur probably within a 48-hour period. And that's, that's nothing like that has ever happened before. That is, is an event like none other in modern weather history. And, uh, you know, now, Barco, of course, is, I guess, uh, and, and by the time this show is broadcast on stations around the country and, and whatnot, you will know more than I know currently about Marco, but right now, it's as we speak, as we record this program, it's hitting the whole coast of Louisiana, and we'll see what happens. I guess right now, rainfall is the biggest concern, but you know, meanwhile, Tropical Storm Laura again, which is um, it's already been uh, uh, been deadly in the Dominican Republic, and it's getting stronger. You got the warm waters of the Caribbean, and it's um, very likely going to be a hurricane and very likely going to hit the same rough area of Louisiana as Hurricane Marco. Again, unprecedented to have two in the same, in two big storms in the Gulf at the same time hitting about the same place. So that's, um, that's a great concern. Those, who, those of you who are listening on uh, WHIV out of Louisiana, out of New Orleans, I, 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 my thoughts are with you. I hope, uh, I hope that the damage isn't too severe. So in the meantime... That's the world of water and the world of fire. We have out west uh, wildfires burning in California. Uh, more than 20 major fires are burning in California right now as we, as we do this program. And, of course, high temperatures, 100 degrees, 110 in some, some cases, uh, those have helped fuel those wildfires. And it's not just California. It's, it's Colorado as well. But um, taking a, another, a closer look at California, yeah, active fires from this August, I mean, we're, again, as we record this program, it's August 24th. 
Active fires through this part of August alone have burned more than double the total acreage burned in California in 2019. That's 260,000 acres. So, uh, you know, according to the Copernicus Atmospheric Atmosphere Monitoring Service, last Wednesday, that, that day set a, it set a one-day record for the amount of wildfire smoke emissions coming from California fires. And that they, those fires put, collectively put an estimated 3 million tons of carbon into the atmosphere in one single day. And that's roughly the equivalent of the carbon pollution from 650,000 cars in one year. 650,000 cars in one year. You know, so it's not just that these fires are responding to the changing climate, but they're making the changing climate even worse. So meanwhile, again, these, the fire, fires are a problem all across the West right now. And in Colorado, there's the uh, Pine Gulch Fire, and that's already consumed 125,000 acres. It's currently the second largest fire in Colorado history. Altogether, there are, what, 86 active large fires in 15 states. Uh, okay, so that's that, that at least has been in the news, although I, it bothers me that you see these, these stories. I mean, these two hurricanes in the Gulf, again, fire situations worsening every year in the West, and only, so, only once in a while do you see the media reminding people, pointing out to people, emphasizing that there is a climate change connection here, that this... This stuff doesn't normally happen on planet Earth, or at least hasn't happened in hundreds of thousands of years. Again, we have a climate situation now that is unlike any that humanity has ever lived in. The percentage of carbon in the atmosphere at, what, 414 parts per million, I believe? That's unprecedented. Uh, we weren't even around as a species when that happened last. So, of course, we're going to see things changing. So in terms of the stuff that doesn't get covered, the derecho, show right here in Iowa. Uh, it, it, here are some headlines, folks. This one's from Market Share. Quote, Iowa derecho disaster gets scant national TV coverage. Okay. And this one's from the Washington Post. Quote, an inland hurricane tore through Iowa. You probably didn't hear about it. And one more. Iowa, well, Iowa was leveled by what amounted to a level two hurricane, but you wouldn't know that from reading, listening to, or watching the news. While the storm did garner some coverage, mostly via wire stories, its impact remains underreported days later. The dispatches, focused on crop damage and electrical outages, have been shouted down by the coverage of deep stakes and the fate of college football. <laughs> Those have gotten more attention than the Iowans left without power or food for what may be weeks. And yes, going to week two, there is still work to be done in Des Moines. Although there are a lot of places that were hit harder than Des Moines. Think of this as, maybe, maybe it helps to think of this as a, not as a hurricane, but as a tornado. Because we're more used to tornadoes here, right? And when you, when folks out across the country associate Iowa with bad weather, it's the tornado that pops up, right? So... This is with a tornado, and again, you can have these really wide tornadoes that decimate like almost a mile wide area. Those are unusual. Usually, a tornado might tear out one side of the street and leave the other side of the street almost unscathed. But this uh, derecho was like a, 
you know, a, a, a small tornado in terms of wind velocity, but 40 miles wide and covering 700 miles in distance, with, again, Iowa getting the, the worst of it. You know, I, my, my daughter was in Cedar Rapids yesterday, and I, um, I've not been down, but Cedar Rapids was the hardest hit of any community in Iowa. And again, this is after, after Cedar Rapids was hit in 2008 with a record-breaking flood, which decimated big swaths of the city. Well, this is worse. This, this derecho hit Cedar Rapids harder than that flood of 2008. And, you know, the other news story that's not covered when it comes to climate, and I will say the other news stories, are what's happening around the world. Now, you know, and it, it's, it's really important to point out that um, while these extreme weather, you know, events hit all places, all peoples, countries around the world, rich and poor alike, uh, they have a greater impact on poor communities, on minority communities, on marginalized peoples. And yet, again, we're not seeing much coverage of, for example, in 2019, Cyclone Idai. I may not even be saying it right. I-D-A-I. That storm in Southern Africa killed a 1,000 people in Zimbabwe, Malawi, Mozambique. Now, the one story we've heard a little bit about is the Australian wild, wildfires. Um, <laughs> And you can some you can you can you can you can make some some as to why that is, but maybe because Australia is not a marginalized community. But anyway, the Australia um, bushfire season last year, it was the worst ever on record, and that followed it followed the hottest year on record. There were 25 million acres that burned, 28 people killed, entire communities and thousands of homes destroyed, and of course that hazardous smoke that uh, affected people all over the place. And also, you know, yep, we have to remember, animals are in the path of those fires. And there were a billion native animals in Australia that were killed because of those bush bushfires last year. So also last year and in previous years, um, higher sea temperatures are what's likely to have um, doubled the likelihood of drought in Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, Northeast Africa, the Horn of Africa. You know, that region has seen severe droughts, not just in 2019, but also in 2017, in 2011. Um, crops and livestock have been destroyed. 15 million people are now in need of aid and are facing acute food and water shortages. But again, veep stakes, the cancellation of the NFL season and college football, all those things seem to be demanding more attention uh, in the American conscience than um, than these uh, horrible situations. Okay, so in Bangladesh, of course, we know that Bangladesh is um, like, a, like a handful of other countries is where the impact of climate change is being felt the worst. Um, in Bangladesh and Nepal and India, uh, 12 million people have been forced from their homes because of flooding and the associated landslides. And that, um, that of course, came after some ex exceptionally heavy monsoon rains. You know, and, and after that event, one-third of all of Bangladesh, one-third of the whole country was underwater. Now, you know, of course, flooding does happen in monsoon season. But what we're hearing from the science community is that uh, the monsoon season in India and Bangladesh, other places, are being extremely intensified by the rising sea surface temperatures in South Asia. All right, and then so a little bit closer to home, El Nino known for um, impacting weather significantly. 
Uh, and in the cl new, new climate era, El Nino tends to be supercharged because of climate change. And it has, um, it has significantly affected what's called Central America's dry corridor, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua. You know, they're seeing three-month dry seasons. Yeah, they're seeing what used to be a three-month dry season now become a six-month dry season. Crops are failing in some places. Most crops have failed. And that puts about 3.5 million people who rely on farming for food and livelihood. It puts about 3.5 million people in need of food assistance. You know, I'm reading Blowout. That's, that's, uh, that's Rachel Maddow's book. It's a good book. It's an indictment of the oil and gas industry. And she, um, I, I'm not too far into it yet, but she has already made some really, uh, done some really good research and exposed some important stuff that we ought to know. And she describes the uh, oil and gas industry as, quote, the most consequential, the most lucrative, the most powerful, and the least well-governed major industry in the history of mankind. Fair enough. It certainly is. Uh, and that has to change. But then here's, here's my problem. Maddow goes on to say, quote, I like driving a pickup and heating my house as much as the next person. And that's where I want to say, you know, government, yes, we need government regulation. The government is, that's us collectively. We need us collectively to be doing a better job to pass the laws and regulations that are going to, you know, force us to do the right thing to confront climate change. But as Gandhi said, and I quote, as a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude of the world change towards him. This is the, this is the divine mystery supreme. A wonderful thing it is and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. And so my challenge to Rachel Maddow and everyone else, including myself, is to do what we know needs to be done in our own lives. Not waiting for government action, not waiting for the business community to come around, not waiting for academia to start taking climate more seriously. You know, let's each do what we have to do in our own lives, in our own way. And for maybe for Rachel Maddow, it means giving up that pickup truck. Um, I, I was really kind of sh shocked by her saying that. Uh, you really, you drive a pickup truck? You really, you, you get all this and yet you drive a pickup truck? Eh, I have trouble with that. I mean, I'm sure that, and, and let me make, be clear, there are people who need a pickup truck for their work. I really doubt Rachel Maddow is one of them. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> beyond that, folks, Blowout does seem to be a good book. I recommend it. All right, we're gonna um, we're gonna move beyond uh, the uh, climate stories that have the main that the mainstream media has missed, Iowa and pretty much everywhere else in the world except for Australia. The other another big story that the mainstream media seems to have missed is the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee just dropping this um this huge Russia bombshell. Most people miss that as well. We're going to talk about it when we come back from a short break with Charles Goldman on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Catering and floral services are also available. The cafe is open for carryout and delivery daily. Gateway Market is centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. At East 5th and Walnut Street, 
Hawk is open Monday through Saturday for dine-in, patio seating, curbside pickup, and carry-out. Hawk also serves fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host. Hey, thanks to our local business partners here in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Ritual Cafe, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, operated by Dr. Kim Holding, who has 30 years of experience treating all creatures great and small. That's Story County Vet Clinic. All right, so completely ignored last week, along with the derecho and some other key climate indicators, was the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee report on Russia's involvement with the 2016 Trump campaign. So, and despite the committee being run by Republicans, its conclusions were even more definitive than what Mueller put out in his report. And those were that basically there was collusion, there was coordination, and Trump had to be fully aware of it. So, my question to you, Charles. Welcome to the show. Charles Goldman with us, folks. Yeah, how, how's it going, Ed? Good. So you've been tracking this report. Um, again, the news media, for some reason, hasn't been tracking it. Um, <laughs> maybe first, why why is this not such a big story? Is it just because there's too much else to report on, or is it that they just don't care? No, it's really, it's really interesting because, obviously, the, the news media, you know, promulgated this story for years. Uh, you know, and, and especially on, on the left of center uh, channels like, you know, CNN, MSNBC, um, you know, everyone thought that, you know, Mueller was going to be the white knight, and, you know, riding to the rescue. And, and then, of course, that turned out to be nothing because Mueller didn't support his own report, you know, partly helped along, of course, by A.G. Barr, but also by his own performance, uh, you know, when he testified before the House committee. Um, and, and so meanwhile, in the background this entire time, the Republican-led uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, sorry, Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, led by uh, Robert Burr right. from uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, finally came out with their report. And basically, um, it confirmed them much of what Mueller had reported and sort of amplified it. Um, right. It was even more severe than what Mueller had reported. Uh, we, correct. Uh, more, certainly more definitive. Now, I mean, again, um, the conclusion about whether there was collusion, and, and you know, again, we're, we're back to the whole issue of collusion is not a crime. It's not a uh, – there's no law against collusion uh, as there is against conspiracy, which is what Mueller claimed was the real, you know, focus of his – Investigation, which is why he ended up saying, "Well, he couldn't say there was or there wasn't." Um, was that there wasn't any question that there was collusion among some pretty senior members of the Trump campaign, um, most especially uh, Paul Manafort, and that Manafort's right. relationship with Konstantin Kalimnik was uh, close. They were sharing information. Why Manafort was giving the Russians information about? you know, Trump campaign strategy and their polling and everything else is, is certainly not the normal 
uh, intelligence interest of so, a foreign country unless they're, they're going to be involved in some way so here, here, in the election. Here, here's what's fascinating uh, me, Charles. Is what, but why is um, why is a report coming out of the Republican-controlled U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee um, just a, a couple months before the election? I mean, what, what you would think that they would do they would be doing everything they could to suppress that information, and yet the Republicans themselves are allowing this to be made public, even though the media aren't really picking up on it. Yeah, you know, I think I, I think that what's happening is that I'm not sure. I, I, I believe that the Republicans don't know where this election is going to leave them. And, you know, they've done everything they can to debase themselves in front of uh, Trump to the point of, uh, you know, situations where I, I thought that they were going to commit a sexual act on the president. Uh, they so debased themselves. And I'm wondering if now some of these Senators who are not running this year, you know, they're not up for re-election, or they're, not, they're up for re-election in safe seats, um, are not saying, well, maybe I want to have some deniability here when this all goes down the tubes. The desperateness of Trump at this point is such that it does make you wonder whether he is, in fact, going to take the party down with him uh, or leave the Republican Party with essentially – a base that consists of somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of the country. Well, and if, you, if, and you, if, you, if you have adequate voter suppression, you can still win with 25 to 30 <laughs> percent. Well, that's true, and we'll talk about that we'll talk about in the next segment. segment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I, I, I do think that, that some of the senators in particular are beginning to wonder whether they want themselves to be associated with Trump uh, going forward. Even Mitch McConnell? Yeah. Well, no, I, I think Mitch McConnell <laughs> is doesn't care one way or the other. I think, you know, he is he he alone has already made his reputation. He didn't need Trump to to debase it any further. You know. <laughs> so I, I no, I, I don't I don't think that Mitch McConnell uh cares one way or the other at this point. But I do think that that's probably part of this, is that there are some who are having uh feeling a little ambivalent about their um involvement in what's yeah, going and, on. And I had I had commented on one aspect of that ambivalence so a couple months ago when I, po I, I posed the uh, possibility that the Republican Party really didn't want Trump as its nominee for president because I, all the polling shows is he's going to lose. Uh, I mean, he's certainly going to lose the popular vote, which, of course, doesn't really matter. <laughs> but uh, even, right. even by various ways of stacking up the Electoral College, uh, it looks like he's going to lose. But the, uh, and we'll talk more about that in the next segment as well. But the, um, you know, what what so I, I was I was speculating that they somehow wanted to try to remove him from the top of the ticket and say put in Mike Pence as the nominee of choice, but um, it looks like you know they're sticking with him. He's uh, got the nomination sewed up in the convention this week, and um, like you said, they're maybe just going to either well count their losses or find ways of manipulating the election, but. Um, yeah, there are. I, th I think there are plenty within the Republican Party that want to position themselves as something more reasonable, and that's a, that's a low bar, something more reasonable yeah. than President Trump. And so perhaps this is one way to do that. But again, I'm mystified by the uh, mainstream media's lack of extensive coverage of the report. I agree, but you know they're in, they're in their horse race mentality right now in terms of their coverage of the election, and so. Um, and, and it, you know, there are so many other things going on. I mean, the pandemic, the post office issue, 
the voter suppression issue, obviously the climate issue, you know, uh, as, as you know, the, the derecho was, you know, sort of on the back burner. I mean, I, I was expecting my mom to call me like that night and they didn't even report it as news in Florida until five days later. Yeah, no, I know. Which, at which point she did then call me, of course. Um, <laughs> right, 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 but, right. You know, um, you know, catastrophic wildfires out west, uh, two hurricanes in a row at, over the same exact landfall, uh, you know, a drought in the Midwest, in Iowa, severe drought now. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Um, the derecho, you know, I mean, I, I it, it does. I think there's just so much going on that these kinds of things do kind of fall in the background, and it, and I think to some degree also it's not really good entertainment anymore because we've already gone down this route. We had the Mueller report, we had the impeachment, you know. Right. Um, so and, he, he, so even though it's even though it's news and especially damaging uh, in terms of the president's credibility, and um, I mean some questions about genuine illegal activity. It just, right. it just, it just—it's it, at some point becomes an old story, correct? Even, even if the information is new. Well, and, and you know, it's, it, it gets—it it starts talking about stuff that it's a thousand pages long. It starts talking about things that people, you know, it, it's esoterical, like talking about CrowdStrike again. And they, that whole issue of that supposedly hacked server that was duplicated, you know, and it was somewhere in Ukraine, which they said, of course, was ridiculous. Um, you know, the Russian uh, connection again with Kalimnik, you know, who clearly was his Russian intelligence agent. Um, and I, I just think people are, are tired of it. You know, it's just it's just another thing on top of some of the other things. And and so it just doesn't move its way up uh, the way it would have maybe a year ago. It would have made a difference. But a year ago, there was no pandemic, you know. Right. <laughs> there was no upcoming election, and and, all the and, and, and there happened. was football. Correct. <laughs> yeah. All right. You know, so. I mean, so it. it I, I agree with you, though. I I think that it seems to me inescapable that there are some Republicans who are feeling very concerned about how they're going to be seen <clears throat> down the road. Because I'm not sure there's much left. You know, I mean the. Who is going? None. None of these people are ever going to be president. Um, Rubio and that crew. Uh, maybe you know some of the, the the true believers like Tom Cotton may end up you know being the candidate next time. Well, or, or, or um, Nikki Haley, or Nikki Haley, or the yeah, South Dakota and, governor. And, and, you know, there's 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 a handful of people, yeah. go to people that the Republican insiders would feel comfortable with. That would right. you know, present a contrast to Trump, but without alienating Trump. Well, but the problem becomes that if your party's basic support consists of the, the Trump of cult, the, the, the cult of Trump, um, then you can't stray too far. Right. Um, although, you know, with a lot of cults, one day the cult members wake up from their slumber and they come to their senses. And um, the, you know, a lot of them may be pretty, pretty angry. So what, about what went on? What's next with this uh, Senate Intelligence report? What uh, now? Now that that's completed, what happens next? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Yeah, nothing will go. What on. should other happen than, next? Other, other than their recommendation that 
you know, they the campaigns must must do more to prevent foreign interference. If we had a functioning uh, government that held people accountable, what would happen next? Well, what would happen next would certainly be number one, secure the voting mechanism from foreign interference and from corporate interference. You know, there's there's no reason to have voting computers. Hmm. It, it it it's just a setup because they're they're all linked up in some way to the internet, so they're just a setup to be manipulated. And they um, and they have been manipulated repeatedly. Right. So the first thing to do is get rid of this idea that we need to know who won that night, and go back to either mechanical machine, you know, mechanical voting machines or paper. Yeah. Um, and and stop this nonsense of vote of election day being one day in the middle of a working week and make it over a period of, you know, three to four weeks um, and allow people to easily vote. So that, that'd be the first thing. Um, the second thing would, would clearly be to uh, make it so that there would be severe penalties for campaigns that didn't report violations, you know, didn't report being approached. Hmm. Uh, even to the point of being, uh, you know, taken out of the election, right? If that's discovered, and all good, but we won't hold our breath. No, no, no because it, yeah. the you know, let's face it, we started with a constitution that wasn't about making elections available. It was about making elections restricted to a, a small class of white men, right? And that's and, a great that's a great yeah. segue to our next segment. We we got to take a short break, folks. And when we come back, uh, uh, Dr. Charles Goldman sticking with us as we talk about the uh, the hundredth anniversary of giving some women the right to vote. We'll talk about that in the context of uh, current um, the current election. Back in a minute here on the Fallon Forum. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, and Tina Haas Findlay. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. Noche on Walnut Street, south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got an elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Kim Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515 515- Two three two eight seven six six. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, again broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Thanks to the nonprofit organizations that help make this program possible. Thanks to Bold Iowa fighting climate change and the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015. Check out boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Go to birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, so um, with us today, Dr. Charles Goldman. And uh, big week last week, a celebration of the uh, 100th, year, 100th anniversary of uh, the um, passing of the 19th Amendment. 
granting women the right to vote, or as Charles pointed out to me recently, uh, some women the right to vote. Uh, Charles, you also wrote to me recently, um, you know, even despite that, that, the 19th Amendment, it would not be until the 1965 Voting Rights Act, now gutted by the Roberts Court, that all women functionally had the right to vote. Uh, yeah, let's start with that, Charles. What do you mean by um, why 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 what was it about the 1965 Voting Rights Act that really granted women the right to vote, despite the 19th well, Amendment being passed 100 years ago? Well, just just to start with, because the um, what what is you know 19th Amendment, which is widely viewed as the women's suffrage amendment, right. simply says that you can't discriminate against a voter on the basis of sex. It doesn't say you can't discriminate against them on the basis of color. It can't say that, uh, or race, or uh, use methodologies such as poll taxes, et cetera, to keep people from voting. It wasn't until 1965 that the minority voters, particularly in the South and also the indigenous people in the Southwest in particular, uh, and also surprisingly Asian Americans, um, really had full access to being able to vote because that. Voting Rights Act in 1965 took away all of those as impediments to voting, and it actually set up a monitoring protocol for states that were notorious for restricting voting rights, hmm. uh, such that they had to pre-clear any changes in their voting laws with federal authorities. Which, and that was the part of the Voting Rights Act that was taken out by the Roberts Court, Does, uh, which essentially uh, neutered it. So explain that in more detail. What, what did what did the? I mean, you said the Roberts Court. You call it that because uh, Roberts tends to be the judge that casts the deciding vote one way or the other. Well, it's not so much that. I mean, he's the chief justice of the court, oh, okay. so we identify this as the Roberts but he, court. He but does, he, does, he, he does tend to cast yeah, what the... They, uh, what they basically said was that, it, and the case involved, um, you know, changes to um, ID requirements in, I think it was Shelby County in one either Alabama or Mississippi, I can't remember exactly what, but um, they pushed back against the idea that they should have to pre-clear this change with the Federal Election Commission uh, before they could, you know, put in their ability to suppress the votes of African Americans. And the Roberts Court basically said that the requirements for pre-reporting had passed because things had changed. So therefore, the law... Uh, was it was no longer needed essentially, which is an interesting criteria for taking away a part of a law. You right. could make the argument that the the utility of the electoral college has clearly passed yes. in a, you know in in a country in which you now have three hundred sixty million people and you know n- you know nationwide communi- instantaneous communications, et cetera, et cetera, in which you know you are trying to in fact make uh, elected positions more popular based. You could argue that the electoral college has outlived its utility, and therefore it shouldn't be it shouldn't be considered law anymore either. I think most people that, most that people would, most people would make that argument too. But uh, right, that, that, that doesn't right. Mean so that was the argument. So they basically said that the that you know except for um, situations that were outrightly racist in you know racial in their restriction that. Um, the, 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 this was no longer necessary. So that's where we are. Yeah, so go, going back to the, uh, the, the 1920 and the passage of the 19th Amendment, 
I don't imagine that suddenly a hundred, you know, suddenly a huge percentage of the uh, female population voted. I imagine it took a while for women to even get accustomed to the reality that they now had a say in government. Do you have any, any, I don't know, I don't, it may be a big ask, but do you have any stats on, on the progression of the percentage of women that voted once that uh, amendment was adopted? No, that's an interesting question. I really don't. I mean, but we, what we do know is that the, abor- the, uh, the suffragist movement itself uh, actually, uh, although they did oftentimes try to trot out women of color, um, and, and, and remember also that the suffragette movement came out of the abolitionist movement of the 1840s. Um, so it, it's surprising to see that when it push came to shove, um, they sold out the women of color in order to get the southern states uh, and some other states to uh, pass the amendment. Because remember, the amendment had to be approved by two-thirds of the states. Right. Tennessee was actually the last one that pushed it over, and it was by one vote. In fact, a, a, Repu- a young Republican state senator who changed his vote after voting against it three times changed his vote because his mother told him, don't come home. <laughs> <laughs> that is an interesting story. Yeah. Um, and so it, it barely passed, and they essentially went with the kind of the at-border type Southern strategy like Nixon did, which is they sold out the women of color hmm. so that they could get the right to vote. Uh, that plus there were members, fairly prominent members of the suffragette movement who were not particularly sympathetic to the equality of people of color. In fact, surprisingly, some of the members of the suffragette movement were against the 15th Amendment, which, Mm. uh, you know, brought the right to um, vote to to mostly African-American men. Um, So it's an interesting sidelight that even in, you know, what was a, a obviously a sea change in American politics, um, that it took another 40, almost 40 years for it really to become meaningful and bring the vote to all women okay. and not just white women. And it's just another example of this is the history of the United States against that, that highlights the privilege that was afforded to white people well into the 1960s and well past the 1960s. And even now, and we we look at the, right. the we look at the various tools of voter suppression that are in place right now, uh, leading up to the 2020 election, and you realize, yeah, that we're not there yet. We don't have fair and equal access to the ballot for all peoples. And even let I mean, we look at any look at any number of states around the country. But Charles, let's take a look at Iowa. You know, yeah, we have um, you know, the Trump administration filing lawsuits against three Iowa counties that tend to be Democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to prevent them from providing um, as much access as possible to people with uh, mail-in ballots. Right. I mean, they're suing to keep the um, applications for your absentee. And, and it's it's not really an absentee ballot anymore. You don't have to have a justification for why you're using it. Mm-hmm. So it's really a mail-in ballot. Yes. Um, the application for your mail-in ballot in, in, in these counties came with your name and your address and your voter PIN number already filled in, and you just simply had to confirm that you were still living at the address and that you were still a voter. And um, the Republicans, who, who have put away about $20 million to sue all around the country to try to you know, keep people from being able to vote by mail, um, and again, selectively in counties 
in Iowa that vote traditionally Democratic, where they're, I'm trying to remember which county it was, um, that they did exactly the same thing. The registrar did exactly the same thing. They didn't sue them. Um, but of course, when they asked, uh, you know, Pate about what, what's the problem, he said, well, we want uniformity. <laughs> Everybody should be using the same form unless you're in a Republican county. So, um, yeah, so they sued because they filled that pin in, which nobody can find, by the way. They filled what? I mean, it, did, did you know that you have a voter pin? Or, no, you know, I, yeah, identification? yeah, the pin number. I mean, I still have my voter, my voter ID card, and it doesn't have the pin on that card, so I have no idea what the pin is. Yeah, I had so, no idea either. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it's, it's ludicrous. I mean, as you point out, it, it's, of course it's not about fairness. It's not about uniformity. It's just about trying to keep counties where they're predominantly Democratic voting from getting people out to vote. Yeah. It's and it's just, this is just one of many, many tools for suppression uh, that are in place right. right now. Right. I mean, you know, I was not that bad compared to a lot of the other states. A lot of the other states, are, it's much more onerous. You have to get your application notarized. You know. Where's that? So um, I think in Wisconsin you do. The places that still have a true absentee ballot, I think, a lot of them require that you, you use a notary. To guarantee your signature. Wow, yeah. Um, That's as bad as a poll tax. <laughs> it, it, well, essentially, it's a poll tax. You've yeah. got to pay the notice. Yeah, right, that right. Not usually that much, but it's <clears> still a poll tax. Yeah, Woodbury County is the county where they sent out pre populated forms to 57,000 registered voters. And that's a county that Trump won by 8,500 votes in 2016. And they are not suing um, that county for doing exactly the same thing Johnson and Lynn County did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, of course, this is, this is all just about voter suppression. But, again, understand that the whole system that was set up by the Constitution was a voter suppression system. It, it didn't give full voting rights to anybody except land-owning predominantly white males. Right. And then it even took away that, quote, popular voting by putting the Electoral College in place Right. so that it was the electors – who actually chose the president. And remember, senators were not directly elected until much later. In the Constitution, U.S. senators were not directly elected by, by popular vote. They were appointed. Right. So um, this is, you know, everyone uses the word democracy. A democracy is, is ruled by the people. The United States was never about rule by the people. And some it's people are so some people are okay with that. <laughs> but... well, I understand that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's just really interesting because, again, um, we, we have this divergence in American history between, you know, I mean, to me, Thomas Jefferson is a perfect example of that, that whole contradiction of American history. You know, this man of the Enlightenment writing all men are created equal and everything else, and, and he's raping his 15-year-old slave. Mm-hmm. So, and... and how do we explain that away? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> no. Yeah. You know, and so, it's it, yeah, it's just like Columbus. What what do you learn about Columbus when you were in elementary school? Oh, he was a hero because he. Everybody else thought the world was flat. Not true. They already knew the world wasn't flat at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't going to fall off the edge. Yes, he, he was. A, it was certainly a great adventure, and you had to have a lot of courage to get in the boat and just try to sail across the ocean. To a place which wasn't North America, by the way, it was the Caribbean where he landed, and 
And then we know what happened from there. Yeah. But that's not what you're taught in elementary school. Yeah. You know, you're taught about the Nina the Pinto and the Santa Maria, and the world was flat. <laughs> so back to the election. And uh, sure. uh, again, we, we, it was good that we celebrated 100 years, uh, the 100-year anniversary of the right. of the, um, of the passing by the Tennessee Amendment, the women's, women's right to vote. The final vote. That's correct. But, but a really important reminder that we still have a long ways to go, all these different mechanisms for suppressing the vote. And I, I'm really encouraged to see so many people speaking up against these strategies that, I mean, and it's not, ex- I mean, largely the Republican Party, but not exclusively. There are places where Democrats also gerrymander, for example. You know, it's not mm-hmm. exclusively a Republican problem, but it is primarily one, and it is most notably one this election season, as they find ways of trying to, you know, keep people in Democratic strongholds from voting, uh, try to, um, you know, try to, uh, you know, again, target, you know, censuses, uh, census tracts with large racial minorities. Uh, it's just, um, and again, we've talked about this too. Um, even if even if the election goes Joe Biden's way, Trump has, has mechanisms at his disposal to try to um, retain power. And one of those is through the certification process, which has to happen mm-hmm. by mid-December, and that doesn't happen. The U.S. House votes to um, votes on the winner, just determines the winner. And even though the House is controlled by Democrats, the majority of states have a Republican delegation and they would prevail. Um, the other concern that is even more disturbing is martial law, you know, calling out the I mean, and, and he's even he's, he's basically implied that he will he will contest the election if he loses. Well, this is this is an interesting question. OK, so the president has said that it's a rigged election, right? So the, the inevitable conclusion from that is, if he wins, it's a rigged election. <laughs> and I think that what the Democrats should vow to do is that if they lose, if Biden loses, that they contest in the states where the vote was closed, this time truly contest, not, not having the Green Party do it. Yeah, really. Yeah. The, you know, and say, okay, President Trump, you said the election is rigged and you won it. See, this is this is this just displays to me the inexplicable appeal of Donald Trump. Because if you're a person with a high school education and someone says to you the election was rigged, it's rigged both ways, right? So you can't say it's rigged if I if if the other side wins, but it's not rigged if I win. Yeah. And yet the cult is 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 just sits there, you know, stand and, and listens to this, you know, the mouth agape, says, oh, yeah, that's right, it's rigged. You know, if, if he loses, it's got to be rigged. Um, it, it, it's just, it's mind-boggling, the, sure. the degree of, the, of overall intellectual debasement this country has undergone in the last three and a half years. Well, thank Fox News for that in part. Not entirely. <laughs> hey, yeah, we got, <laughs> Not entirely. Yeah. We got, uh, people have gone along willingly with this, too. Oh, yeah. We've got her under yeah, a break, Charles. Um Thank you for joining us today. Folks, we've been talking with Charles Goldman, a frequent guest on this program. When we come back, another frequent guest, Kathy Burns, is going to join us. We're going to talk about bee stings. And believe it or not, I have the, uh, I, I have, I have, I'm, I'm sporting proof of what bee stings can look like. But we came up with this topic even before I got stung yesterday. So we'll see where that goes. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, no-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. 
They've been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yep, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music, and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, Ed Fallon, your host here. Thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, my local grocery store. Also, um, they do takeout for lunch and dinner seven days a week. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also, also to Architecture by Synthesis with uh, 30 years of experience specializing in cutting-edge, creative, environmentally friendly designs, including super-insulated structures made from grain bins. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Again, welcome back to the program. With me now, Kathy Burns with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And we're going to talk about bee stings. And if you are watching, I know some of you are just listening. If you're watching this program on Facebook, you will notice that the left side of my head um, looks really bad. <laughs> I, I got stung by a bee. And I, I guess this is what I would look like if I weighed 250 pounds. It does tend to smooth out the wrinkles, I notice. It's... It's quite a, a baby smooth appearance that you've got on the left it's side. It's really of your uncomfortable. Face. I don't recommend anybody do this in their spare time if you can avoid it. Well, you got stung yesterday. We yeah. were harvesting honey. First sting of the year. First sting of the year for you, and the first for me. We both have good bee suits, so it's honey extraction time. And at Birds and Bees Urban Farm, we were we were busy taking the frames out of the supers because it's a box that that the honey's that the bees make the honey in. Exciting time of year, but the bees get understandably upset when you're taking their yeah, honey. Stealing their food. Yeah. And the the, the uh, bee suits are very protective, very protective, used correctly. Except if you fail to, I, I, and I was rushing to put my suit on. I never get stung with my, I, 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 it's like I'm going to war. I have these monster boots on. Nothing can get through those. I tuck pants outside the boots. I have these welding gloves. And then I have this suit that works really, really well, except when you forget to uh, seal the, the, the little hole there in the front. And I think a couple bees got in there. Well, Next thing I know, I have two bees in my hood. And I'm like, ah. Well, we both wear our suits when we work bees. Not everybody does. Not everybody has the sensitivity to a sting that you knew that you had. And now you also know well, that you have a greater sensitivity yeah. than you've ever had, it seems. What Why I've learned. Describe what happened? Yeah, what I've learned is that you can become more sensitive over time. So, you know, my as a, in, in my, my younger years, I would get stung and that would be it. Then it would hurt for a couple hours. I'd cry to my mommy and that would be it. <laughs> and then, um, you know, in the first couple of years of us doing this work, we were stung a few times. And I would notice, and even, even a few years earlier, I'd noticed that, uh, that whatever got stung would swell up quite a bit. 
not as bad as the entire left side of my head is swelling up. But what really happened that was mm-hmm. a problem yesterday when I got the sting was I started feeling faint, uh, dizzy. Um, my eyes started flickering in a weird way. And then my hands became itchy. There's no, the, the sting was on my eye, above my eye. But my hands were like intensely itchy. Then my feet. And then it spread to the rest of my body. And I guess now I know those are the early signs of um, aphylactic shock. And did I say it right? Uh, Maybe I said it right. Anaphylactic, anaphylactic shock. Anaphylactic there we go. Shock. <laughs> anaphylactic shock. I need to learn more about this because I'm Learning probably now, I'm probably now in the category of somebody who could actually experience the, the um, the trauma that leads to death, uh, with the bee sting. Well, so. <laughs> something that that I was really grateful as the person tending to the one with the severe reaction, and we could tell it was a severe reaction. My first instinct, take him to the emergency room. And we decided he was still breathing. He didn't have any trouble breathing. So I Googled um, bee stings and poison, and and I got poison.org. And it turned out to be a really helpful site. It's Poison Control. It's a national website. Um, They did a really good job. Online, they had a very simple questionnaire. And they aimed that questionnaire at the person helping the one who's been poisoned. Obviously, it makes sense because the user is not going to be the one who can't get off the couch because he's going to pass out. The person looking it up is the person helping them usually. And it was a really simple questionnaire. I told them how old you are, what your gender is, how many stings you had. And then they had a list of common side effects or common um, symptoms. And it says, is the person experiencing more than this? And I clicked yes. And the specifically, the message came up on that site, call poison control at 1-800-222-1222 for immediate guidance. So I called 800-222-1222, and they gave us an immediate guidance. It was right. pretty good guidance, too. And one thing that's clear now is that I'm going to need an EpiPen. Uh, handy and, and uh, you know those were six or seven hundred bucks. Uh, I mean it was it was. Um, I think somebody did jail time over price gouging or, or I don't remember the details, but it was pretty bad. But I think you can get them for cheaper than that. But if you are at all at risk of being severely allergic to bee venom, then you want to have that handy, I suppose. You also want to ask whether or not you ought to be um, in the in the business of, um, of keeping bees. Uh, I, I I came across the story of Jennifer Ford. Um, she is that that's their that's she and her husband Keith that's their profession beekeeping and she'd been stung before many times but then on one particular occasion she said she noticed her lips and tongue and throat starting to get slightly swollen not good no and a few days later they went back to collect some more some more um uh, honey I guess and she was stung again same reaction and um and so you know it uh and and that and that reaction ranges from hives to rash or swelling or respiratory symptoms, and um, she realized that you know if she's going to continue to be a beekeeper, she needed to do immune what's it called again immunology immunotherapy 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 there we go. Actually, your and, uh, your energy level and your 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 pronunciation has been weird today. Too. It has it's been. A side effect it has of, been. I've, I've been hard maybe pressed. of the Benadryl you took yesterday. Well, I don't know about that, but yeah, immunotherapy. So she started doing those shots once a week, and that's a lot of that's a lot of needles sticking into, into somebody, in my opinion. Um, somebody who's not used to needles. You're not a needle. <laughs> I'm guy. not a needle fan. Um, and the treatment worked, but then she switched back to every six weeks, and then she had another setback, another honeybee. Um, stung her, 
And um, yeah, so, you know, and the problem with EpiPen too is that you, you, you stab that uh, needle into your thigh, it prevents you from, you know, not being able to breathe, but then you still have to go to the hospital and deal with lots of problems, lots of, um, so, you know, I, I kind of, suddenly I'm questioning whether I should be in the beekeeping business, which I hate to have to say, but we're going to talk through this and figure out how best to move forward. We think we have a little time to work on how this could or couldn't work for us at Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Um, we're coming to the time when the honey's been harvested, the bees will start to calm down a little bit, and when the weather turns cold, they're going to be in their hives, and we won't open that hive till it's um, till it's warm again and warm enough again in the uh, late winter, early spring. So we have some time to think about it, but maybe we'll reduce the number of hives that we keep. Maybe I'll be the one to go work the bees outside, and Ed will do the, the stuff. That doesn't sound like fun. No, it doesn't, does it? yeah. It doesn't and, you know, I, I've only been, that was the first time I was ever stung while wearing my bee suit, and it's because I, it was human error. I failed to close it up properly. Mm. And all the, any other time I've been stung in the past three years, and it's only been a few, it's been out in the yard, in the garden, mm. you know, um, just, it, it's not been while doing the bee work. Well, last yeah. year I didn't have a proper bee suit, and I got stung yes, nine times on my legs, and I didn't feel well, hmm. but I, I didn't have any of the symptoms that you had. And I had nine stings within about an hour. Yeah. Uh, so definitely it's it's cause for concern. It's important, though. We I knew it was I knew you should always get that stinger out, but I didn't know how important it was to get it out as soon as possible. You didn't yeah. ever have a stinger. No, for some reason there wasn't one there. I hadn't realized when the... I, we knew that when the bee stings you, those little barbs that go into your skin prevent the bee from pulling the stinger back out, so the bee gets torn out of the bee's body along the with some of her... The stinger gets torn the, out of the bee. Oh, what did I say? The bee gets torn. The stinger gets torn out of the bee's body. Okay. And along, <laughs> me, me with my words, <laughs> along with some of her body parts. Because one of those body parts is part of the abdominal muscle that originally pumped that stinger in there and the venom in the stinger. And that abdominal muscle continues to work without the bee. Pumping the poison into you. Pumping the poison into you. So the the advice on a um, site called earthsky.org says it doesn't matter, you know, whether you pull it out carefully or scrape it out or flick it out. Just get it out as quickly as possible. Yeah. That's the advice that that website gives. Yeah. Well, it's important to know about this stuff, and I've learned that the hard way this past week. Anyway, th- thanks for joining us, Kathy. Folks, we've been talking with Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm about bee stings. We'll be back next week with another program, of course. In the meantime, thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina, and thanks to the stations in Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can also watch this segment on the Fallon Forum Facebook page, and please subscribe to our blog at FallonForum.com and to the podcast on iTunes, that's Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Thanks. This is Ed Fallon.